This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and it's the morning after a big majority win for François Legault's CAC in Quebec. Closer to home, the province has embarked on its first post-pandemic battle with unionized workers, this time with the lowest paid education support workers. Is this an indication of the kind of labor strife we should expect? At the local level, bombshell sexual assault charges against prominent city councillor Michael Thompson. What, if anything, does it mean for the municipal race? And in Ottawa, more damning revelations about Hockey Canada's use of fees from parents as a slush fund for sexual assault claims. As the Minister of Sport put it aptly, they seem to see this criminal behaviour as an insurance problem. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And for the first time in a while, we have our original three recovering politicians together. I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader. Hello, everyone. Hello, Libby. Hey, good afternoon. Hey, uh, and I hope everybody had great trips that uh, I'd love to hear about, <laughs> but perhaps not now. Yeah. Uh, so the Quebec election, Charles Sousa. Well, no surprise. It was a commanding victory. I think within minutes after the polls closed, they declared uh, the CAQ uh, the, the, the majority government. And, you know, they've appealed to the nationalism within the, the province, they're center-right when it comes to fiscal and economic issues, and they're left when it comes to health and education. I think that's where majority of Canadians stand from whatever province. I mean, other than Quebec, other than Montreal, uh, they, they took over, and uh, it, was a, it was a substantive uh, reinforcement. And, and when it comes to the opposition, they weren't very efficient in their votes, and uh, the Liberals came across as, as the official opposition, it brings the question what's happening with the conservative movement and uh, the PQs there. But otherwise, notwithstanding Bill 21 and the issues around the religious symbol, I think the French language issues and their support for their citizens makes in a difference. And uh, Francois is uh, to be congratulated. Uh, Lisa Raitt, uh, there was a lot of talk in the lead up about a resurgence of a conservative vote. Uh, you had a popular radio host, Eric Duham. He was leading it. He did not win his seat. Uh, what do you make of that? I'm, I, I don't think he was exactly the same ilk of conservative that you are. So it's interesting what Charles said, and that this is the key. The voting efficiency for the conservatives was not there, meaning they were within like a pers- like not even a, per- a point of a percentage point within the same um, uh, the same level of, of popular vote attainment as did the liberals. But the liberals ended up getting a lot more seats than than the conservatives did. And as a result, you can see that it's important to have um, to definitely have efficiency. But if I may, on, on the on Mr. Legault, I, I would highlight that my concern, and it, and I think it's one that's shared, is you know during the campaign, uh, they toyed a lot with being anti-immigrant, and the one thing that binds all companies in Canada uh, is the fact that there's a recognition is that we are really short on labor skills in this country, and I don't think Quebec has the has the luxury of saying that we don't want to have immigration when they have lots of stuff they plan on building in the future. And if you want to build stuff, you need people to build it. So I'm waiting to see how that's going to play out. 
I, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of political parties being anti-immigration. Obviously, yeah, and he he, he had a, a a little blowout or a big blowout with one of his ministers saying that immigrants were lazy. Uh, Howard Hampton. I mean, he had to beat back on that. But again, I I am a bit surprised because, like everyone else in Canada, they need immigrants. Yeah. Well, uh, Canada as a whole needs immigrants uh, if we're going to have the workforce uh, to carry us forward over the next 30 years. But uh, I think one of the things we've seen, and I'll I'll use the COVID example, you can give evidence of what we should be doing, scientific evidence, factual evidence, and yet uh, people may do exactly the opposite. And I I think what what is really at work in Quebec is this. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the Montreal Canadiens hockey team or if you're talking about uh, small town, small city, Quebec. Uh, the feeling that Francophones have that their language, their culture, their history uh, is being undermined by immigration. And uh, you can cite all kinds of statistics to say this isn't true, but having gotten into discussions with people in Quebec about the Montreal Canadiens hockey team, and they say, well, why don't we have more Quebecois players on the team? Why do we have players from Finland? Why do we have players from Sweden? Why do we have players from the Czech Republic? Why don't we have more Quebec-born players on the team? And it's, a, it's, it's an emotional argument, and it's an emotional argument based upon, you know, I, I guess what, what has flowed over the years from Maitre Chenu. But what was a what I would call a, a positive nationalism in the 60s and 70s, where Quebec said, you know, we're going to take control over our own destiny, uh, and uh, we are going to, we the people of Quebec are going to have something to say about this, in many ways has now become a, a almost a defensive or inward-looking nationalism. And uh, to his credit, uh, although I think down the road this will cause problems, uh, for uh, governments in Quebec, Legault has uh, he has captured that issue, uh, which is, as I say, very strong uh, in the province of Quebec. Well, he's a he's a former Pequist, so I think uh, yes, uh, captured is. is not is. I mean, I think uh, that's what he really believes, and I think uh, this also shows that our government will be even less likely to uh, take on Bill 21, which, of course, outlaws the wearing of any kind of religious symbols for for public servants. But let us move on to the provincial government, Charles. And uh, so we have this brewing battle with the education support workers, which is, I guess, the first contract. Uh, And so the, the government is uh, casting it as they want uh, more than 11%. They've got gold-plated p- uh, pensions, and this is terrible for kids. And the union is casting it as, as hey, we're asking for uh, $3.25 extra an hour for the lowest-paid workers. Uh, what do you make of this? Yeah, it's really tough. I mean, we've all in government have had to deal with um, labor strife at one point or another, and uh, the minister has made it clear that, well, he hasn't actually made it clear. I'm not sure what he's going to institute in terms of getting, forcing people back to work. But um, there is obviously a disconnect between their fiscal desire to reduce costs and, and labor costs within the budget is the largest item. And uh, any changes there is a substantive cost. But the real issue is if it gets overturned, if there's a, it can make cost the government even more by not cooperating and finding a resolution with the union. And uh, that's the, that's I mean, the, the financial accountability officer spoke about it uh, even yesterday, saying uh, this is expensive, certainly, and but if we go into a labor dispute and it gets overturned and then you get it resolved by mediators and so forth, it may cost even more. And uh, so I, I'm not sure where the government's going to be on this. Obviously, a lot of dissatisfied individuals in the education system, for that matter, right across the health system as well. So... This will be one of many, and it's it's like hopscotch. It's like um, uh, you know they they leapfrog over one another, and uh, the, you know that's going to be a tough thing for the government to resolve. The moment they make resolutions with one or a settlement with one, the others will come back and want more again. 
Well, it, that's uh, that's it. The minister, Stephen Lecce, says this will be a template. So this kind of percentage is outsized. But uh, Lisa, you know, uh, the unions keep saying that Bill 24 is the biggest impediment that's keeping wages at 1% for certain public sector workers, mostly women, of course. Uh, and I thought, well, there's no way that they would even contemplate going there given inflation. But, you know, when I look at this, I think, well, maybe they will stay there. I, <laughs> what's your take? So it's the negotiation. And I think the for me, the key is knowing that this, this, this is the first negotiation out of the gate in the current circumstances of high inflation. And as a result, everyone's going to be paying attention. And we've already gotten, we've ripped the Band-Aid off. A strike vote has been taken. The government's been asked if they're going to do back-to-work legislation. And now everyone needs to go back and try to do a deal that's good for their own uh, their own interests, either for the union or, or for the government. And let's wait and see what ends up coming out of it, because as you point out, it's not the last one. I don't know if I'd want to be the first on this one or the last one on this one, because the longer this goes, the more, I would say, irritated uh, the, the general public is going to be uh, about people saying, well, we're, we're going to go on strike and we're going to make we're going to make life um, less convenient for you in whatever way that's going to be. And the further down the line you are in terms of threatening either locking out or threatening strike action, the less popular you're going to be with the with the, the public and the public. You know, they are the ones that make the decision at the end of the day in terms of how well the government is doing. Howard, I bet you have a different view of this. Well, let's be clear who we're talking about here. Educational support workers are the lowest paid people uh, in Ontario's education system. Uh, these are the people who, in the classroom, uh, have the very close working relationship with children with emotional disabilities, with physical disabilities, with intellectual disabilities. And, and, and let me just be clear, you know, these are the folks who work with children who uh, really struggle. These are the people who, if your child, you know, can't go to the bathroom, they take them to the bathroom. They wipe their bum. Uh, these, these are the people who, you know, work with kids who have very serious behavioral problems. Um, so this is hard work. And if these people, if you look at what their take-home pay is, are seriously underpaid at a time when the cost of living is going through the roof. These people are not the cause of inflation. Uh, you know, so so can any, any attempt to pin this on them is just a plain wrong. These are people who do absolutely necessary work in the classroom, given how our education system is structured now. And uh, you're, you're not going to have them in the classroom if you don't pay them. Well, that's yeah, what I, comes, that this, is that's what this comes down to, because well, they're not paid adequately for the work they do. And you're going to find the same thing that's happened in other service sectors. They will leave the sector if uh, improvements to their pay uh, and, and other issues don't happen. Well, and I think that that's what you know parents are going to have to understand. Well, they will go elsewhere because. Given the labor shortages, given the people, the hundreds of thousands of people who retired in the face of COVID, they just simply said, whether it's doctors, nurses, uh, Air Canada employees, other, other people who work in the service sector, they simply said, I'm not being paid for this, I'm leaving. So there is that labor shortage. And you will not have these people uh, continuing to stay in the classroom if the government continues with the position they've taken. Well, those are uh, obviously uh, the two lines of argument, uh, but it's uh, that's uh, what both Charles and Lisa pointed out, is that whatever, whatever they get will be a kind of template. Uh, I mean, Charles, I, I think this points to, you know, a long season of this, not, not a one-off. No, it won't be a one-off, but it, it's, that's going to be a tough, it's going to be a tough start. Um, but it's appropriate for the government, I mean, not appropriate, in their benefit, I guess, to do it early in the mandate. they got four years ahead of them. Take the tough love right now. Make those tough decisions. They're, they're, and it's going to be a tough negotiation. They're going to press hard to keep some of these costs down. 
and uh, because they recognize the ripple effect will will be more tremendous. Um, so I don't anticipate that they'll uh, be. I mean, they won't be as worried about the public backlash right now because they feel they have a few more years to make it up in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it's also, is it possible for a government to say, uh, hey, uh, these are the lowest paid workers and, and we're going to give them a special deal, but it doesn't apply to others. And I know there are private sector companies doing just that, saying, we yeah. don't want anybody who makes, we don't want anybody to make less than whatever the amount is, uh, $50,000 maybe. And, and those people are going to get more than others. We did it with personal support workers, right? They were given uh, preferential treatment because they were the lowest paid. And the margin, uh, when you do the delta of a percentage increase, it's modest. When you do it for someone at the low pay end, it's tremendously high for those at the higher end. So they were, you know, you've got to pick and support those that are most in need. In this case, certainly these individuals who are the lowest paid deserve a little more. But they have to be careful as to how that will then be be received yeah. for those that are being paid even more, much more. Well, exactly. Uh, Lisa, do you see that as a, a possible uh, way for them to go? Could be. I think that's what they're putting out there, that they're going to try to make sure that everyone comes up to a certain floor, um, recognizing the impact that higher higher inflation has uh, when you're when you're making a lot less money. And it's going to be difficult because I don't know whether or not that's going to be allowed within our current structure of of bargaining, if that is an approach that's actually going to win the day. Look, I, I'm going to rely upon cooler heads at both the union um, at, at the table, both union and management side, to get to a good deal, to make sure that everybody is happy as they can be, including the the parents who have been going through such an extreme amount of up and down the last couple of years. I think that's the best solution for all of us, their own deal and a deal that is going to protect people from a lot more change. Hmm. Uh, moving along, Howard. So uh, we had a bombshell last week, Councillor Michael Thompson, a veteran counselor, very prominent charged with sexual assault. And uh, you know, his, he he has not withdrawn from the race. He stepped down as deputy mayor and uh, uh, chair of a committee. Is this going to have any impact at all? You know, I've heard people say that in a municipal race, the uh, the power of incumbency is so great that this is not even a ripple. Well, the power of incumbency is certainly there. There's no doubt about that. Um, I I I think my own sense of these things now is that. Uh, people will uh, not convict someone in the court of public opinion right away. Um, so will will it have an impact on the election? Oh, I, I, I'm sure it will. But th- that impact uh, may not be uh, an, uh, enough uh, for voters in that particular part of the city to say, oh, we're, you know, I, I'm not voting or I'm not voting for this person. I, I think people will uh, want to see what 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 comes of this? Um, I don't think you're going to unless something very quickly happens very quickly. I don't think you're no. going to see a trial and a, and a uh, determination of this for some time. So I, I, my sense is people will uh, uh, you know will hold judgment on on this, but um, it, it it will certainly be an issue that is discussed, debated, questions will be asked, et cetera, et cetera, and I, of course it will get some media attention. But, well, uh, sorry, public, go ahead. I think we'll we'll hold the fire. Well, and it's uh, innocent until proven guilty. And I was having a peek at the rules. So uh, certainly charges are not enough to remove somebody as well. They should not be. Uh, And even a conviction isn't a a jail term uh, might be enough. But but that's about it, Charles. Yeah, we won't know this. Uh, The disclosure has yet to occur and that'll happen sometime into November, December, possibly. I mean, his lawyer, he's a friend of his, and... Uh, his lawyer he, withdrew. He withdrew at Calvin Berry, yeah. yeah. And, but he withdrew, noting that it was, you know, he's going to plead not guilty, and he's I mean, referencing the fact that uh, uh, it's, it's, it's... He's suggesting that it's not legitimate, whatever. Um, but we, you know, will Michael Thompson win? He won with huge majorities right. in the past. Lots of, you know, he's been popular over there. I, I suspect he may win the day, 
um, may not, as um, as noted by Howard, I mean, people necessarily don't want to do this in public, but there is public sentiment. People will talk about abuse in the system, and here's yet another counselor who they may not know personally, but just the notion of this taking place is yet another scandal, and uh, people are less tolerant because of what's been happening in the news. But I think he'll, he'll get through it, and then we'll see, in fact, if he's, uh, if, if he's charged and, uh, and if he's um, found guilty, I mean, or not. I mean, this is, we've got to give him that right. And, and I do feel for the victims here who have stepped forward, and, and they deserve their rights, too. Yeah. Um, and uh, on this subject, more revelations about Hockey Canada. Lisa, like this thing just gets worse and worse. A second, I will call it a slush fund uh, to pay off sexual assault claims. And as uh, the minister, Pascal Saint-Ange, said, you know, they they seem to see this just as an insurance problem. Uh, They're standing by their CEO. Uh, Yeah, it's such a mess, Libby. I mean, it's it's a mess from all circumstances, if you are a victim uh, in in these cases and you're not getting the appropriate, I guess, hearing from police and the charges are not proceeding and there's no complaint, then you turn to Hockey Canada and say, well, I have a complaint against you. And Hockey Canada um, decides that they're going to make compensation with the with the victim. I'm okay with the victim getting compensation, by the way. I think that is appropriate. I think it's appropriate Hockey Canada pays it, um, but I also think it's appropriate that Hockey Canada discloses this and doesn't hide it from a long time ago. And the fact that they recognize that they do have a problem um, and that they have to fix it. And they haven't done any of that. I'm not worried about the, the fund. I'm not worried about the money being there for victims. I think it's if you're not getting the justice that you deserve through the legal system, then you have to get some justice along the way. And presumably what should happen is that these payouts should make Hockey Canada realize, shoot, we've got a real problem here. We better fix it, or at least we better disclose it. And they did neither of those. So, yeah, they're guilty when it comes how they've handled it. I don't think the guilt, though, is about the fact that they wanted to compensate the victim. And so, Howard, where should this money come from? Well, look, I, I, I don't think where this money should come from is, is a central issue here. The, the fact of the matter is... Uh, this has been going on uh, from one end of Canada to the other for decade after decade after decade. And I think what Hockey Canada has been doing is they've been buying silence. Yes. Yeah. That's what they've been doing. They've been buying silence. Yes. Uh, and and the, the real tragedy here is that when this happens in small town Alberta, and it happens in small town Saskatchewan, and it happens in small town Nova Scotia, Hockey Canada has to be proactive, and they needed to be proactive probably 30 years ago. And let me just you know, give you how close this touches. My hometown, Fort Francis, Ontario, in northwestern Ontario, they hired a junior A hockey coach, and he came with an unbelievable resume, all right? Uh, and, and they hired him, and then they found out during the Christmas break that he was sending uh, very sexually suggestive emails and texts to some of his players. So the local organization uh, t- took it upon themselves. They suspended him. They asked for a police investigation. The police investigation started locally. And then it came out that uh, going back three decades in small town Manitoba, small town Saskatchewan, and small town Alberta, there had been similar incidents with with uh, t- players as young as 14, 15, 16, 17. And, and the question that everybody started to ask was, well, if this happened in a town in Saskatchewan, a town in Alberta, a town in Manitoba, he's in a, in a town for three or four years, uh, people start to raise issues about what's going on, he leaves, he goes to another province, he coaches there for three or four years, people start to ask questions, what's going on here? Uh, he leaves, he goes to another province. Where was Hockey Canada? What well, the hell have they been doing? Well, th- buying that, silence. That, yes. That's what they've been doing. Also, buying silence. Also, I have to say, and I've seen this in other arenas, not just with sexual misconduct or sexual assault, where uh, p- 
people doing hiring do not do a very good job of vetting and miss problems uh, that uh, could have been relatively easily uncovered. Um, Charles, I, I just want to get the last word on this from you. Um, you know, uh, Lisa and Howard were saying the, the, the main issue is not where the money comes from, but I've talked to a number of hockey parents and they disagree on that. Well, the membership is demanding change. Given the revelations that have now come out, and this has been going on, as noted by Howard, for decades. In 1989, I think there was they paid it since then about $7.6 million in nine settlements. And the issue comes around transparency. Uh, the issue comes around about setting the stage and the leadership, and they've tolerated it. And so I guess maybe some of the members have tolerated it. There has been so lack of transparency. And I would say that the revelations isn't just about sexual abuse. There's also financial abuse. I, I think they need a governance audit and a financial audit. They need to understand where the gifts are coming from, all the other things and the, the, the benefits that some of these individuals are receiving that are not disclosed. They should be disclosed. And people who have their money in, invested in their children and in their kids and in this organization, they deserve and should demand a change in leadership and no longer tolerate, similarly to what's happening in our, in our defense in, 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 with our military. Uh, you know, what was seemed to say, okay, we'll just keep it hidden, and, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, it isn't the way it is, and it shouldn't be, ta- and it shouldn't be accepted. And um, I suspect now with the public hearings that are going to be taken on, there'll be a lot of changes being made at Hockey Canada. Yeah, I just, I just heard someone a few minutes ago saying that, in their opinion, uh, this is a change board, Lisa. I mean, I don't really get what... Uh, makes boards sort of hunker down and get behind people who are the problem? Uh, You know, this has always, this file really has troubled me from the beginning because at every step of the way where they could have come clean and done better, they haven't taken the opportunity to do so. Even having this information dribble out little by little by little. So if the board isn't doing the job, the board has to look inwardly and determine whether or not they're really, you know, is this the best group of people to move forward? Because the system has a black eye. And you know who carries that black eye? The boys and girls who play hockey. And that's not the way it should be. I mean, if they're if they're part of the problem, get out of the way, bring in new management, bring in a new board, and, and clean the place up. Okay. Uh, we have 20 seconds left. Howard, how do you make that happen? Well, I, I think the central part of the problem here is is that hockey in Canada has been put on a pedestal, that it is sacred. If you think back historically, you know, you were not allowed to criticize the church. Well, uh, you know, people have come forward in, in small towns and small cities and said, you know, there's something not right here. But uh, again, hockey is sacred, and so you're not allowed to, to criticize. And, and so Hockey Canada whether you're talking at the, the national level in Calgary or you're talking the provincial associations in Ontario and Quebec, to a large degree, um, they have been beyond criticism, beyond uh, uh, if, if someone's being able to say, you know, you need to be held accountable for what's happening here. You just take another example. Go back 25 years, violence in hockey, all right? And, and, and if I may... Uh, you know, the, the uh, Attorney General for Ontario at the time uh, you know, requested that the police go to hockey games and arrest players who were taking their, sw- their sticks and swinging it at another player's head at, because Hockey Canada wasn't going to do anything. As far as they were concerned, you know, beating someone into uh, you know, a, a, a pulp on the ice uh, was, was okay. It was part of the game. Uh, and, and so, Howard, is, we've got to wrap things up. Ten seconds. <laughs> Finish well, this your is another. This is sort of a, a, another iteration of this. Hockey in Canada traditionally has been beyond criticism. It's been on a pedestal, and I think that has to end. That's that's the real thing. I think that has to be dealt with. Okay. It has to be accountable to people. It has to be accountable for what it's doing, and it hasn't been. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, Howard Hampton, Lisa Raitt, and Charles Souza, and we will talk again soon. Thanks a lot. All the best. Bye. All the best. Bye, guys. We're taking a break, and when we come back, COVID.
Remember COVID? We haven't talked about it for a while, but it is on the uptick, and we'll discuss that after the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Most everyone, myself included, is acting like COVID is over. But Canada is experiencing an uptick in the disease. And I can tell you personally, I've heard from at least four people in my own circle in the last week that they have COVID. And thank goodness they're not seriously ill, but they are certainly sick, quite sick. And I must say, very surprised that this happened to them. It's very early in the season, too, and we're heading into the Thanksgiving weekend, which for many people will be the first bigger, unrestricted gathering in a very long time. So what do you think? Have your friends been getting COVID? Uh, Have you thought about it in the last, I don't know, however many months? Uh, And uh, are you still masking? And uh, are you worried? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the University Health Network. Dr. Hota, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me, and good afternoon, Libby. Okay, so... Uh, are are people like is it is it time to remember that yes this thing is still with us? Yes, I mean I guess we never should have forgotten, should we? I, you it's know, so easy to forget, especially it's, uh, <laughs> when it's something not very pleasant. It's willful forgetting. We're, we're all tired of it, and that's understandable. But the the truth of the matter is, COVID is continued to circulate through the summer, previous summers since it emerged. And so, you know, from my perspective, there's actually continued to be a really high amount of COVID in our communities um, through much of the country. And we just haven't been able to see it so well because we're not reporting those numbers. We're not testing everybody. So it's actually a bit deceiving maybe to the public um, where it's easy to think it's gone. It's not that big a deal. It's the summertime and things have subsided. But the truth is, it continues to circulate. Well, yeah, I was I was going to bring that up. Uh, you know, it it almost feels sometimes that the numbers are being deliberately hidden. The government doesn't want us to think about these things, and therefore, uh, you know, you, you you can't think about what you can't measure, and you can't really measure it the way things are now. Well, I think part of the the issue is, you know, I agree that we shouldn't let you know, the numbers of cases of COVID-19 just dominate our world all the time. We can't just be singularly focused on that number of cases. But at the same time, we need to recognize what the trends are and and not believe the opposites occurred that, you know, that things have disappeared when they're continuing to be around. So I think it is. Hello, Dr. Hota? Uh, Are you back there? Dr. Hota? Okay, we're going to have to uh, get Dr. Hota back. In the meantime, we'll take a couple of calls. We've got Carol in Guelph. Hi, Carol. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? I'm great. Now, <laughs> um, I do mask whenever I go out in public, um, and because I still know that COVID is definitely around. I was at a convention the end of August, and the first week of September, I tested positive. Hmm. And how many shots have you had, if I may ask? I've had four. Four. Yeah, there you go. And uh, how was your... still there. <laughs> how, was your, how was your bout? Uh, the first few days, actually, when I was still testing negative was when I was most sick. Mm-hmm. When I started feeling better, then I started... That, that was when I started testing positive, and I was positive for eight days. Wow, that's a long one. That was a long one. That was a long one. Uh, Carol, thanks for sharing your experience. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so there you go, Dr. Hoda. We uh, have you back. I think we just heard from Carol, and uh, she tested positive after four shots. Yes. Yes, I mean, we do know that the vaccines really help to prevent severe infection. It's what's protecting us from getting really sick from COVID-19. 
However, there are two things to keep in mind with the vaccines. They are not necessarily going to prevent infections from happening altogether. And the other thing is that the effects of those vaccines will wane over time like many vaccines, that's not a new concept. Um, and also, even if you've had a COVID-19 infection, the protection or immunity you get from that may also wane over time. Details on what that timeline looks like, depending on what vaccine you get, what type of variants are circulating, gets ever com- too complex to get into the details. But, you know, the recommendations right now um, are to get boosted if you haven't had a dose of the vaccine within three to six months, um, depending on you know, what the situation is and when you can access them. Well, three to six months, that's pretty wide uh, range. It is. I mean, it. you know, I think that um, we have to recognize that these things are, are always evolving. And we do also have to make this something that's manageable for people. So I guess the, the bottom line is try to keep yourself as up to date on being immune as possible. We feel like we've been in this pandemic for a very long time. We have been. <laughs> yes, we have. But I, in the grand scheme of things, when you're talking about a new pathogen on the forefront, this is, you know, milliseconds for the organism. So I think we, we just have to recognize that things will continue to change and the organism's evolving. So we we do have to, you know, be uh, willing to adjust how we, we behave and what we do. Now, given that uh, the stats are not being in, reported in the way they used to be, so how are you getting your information? Is it mostly wastewater or what? The wastewater data is very helpful. It shows trends, and I think the trends are the most important things we can look at right now. Um, the other thing is looking at hospitalizations and intensive care admissions, which thankfully have been fairly low. But hospitalizations have been steady. Um, we have not seen things come down the way that we would have liked to see in terms of patients with uh, COVID-19 who end up in hospital. So those are useful indicators. Um, looking also in the background at what's happening with other variants and subvariants that have, you know, gotten interest because they are circulating and starting to increase in proportion in other parts of the world is useful for surveillance because that could be, you know, the early warning that there might be something that gets uh, you know, into our population and could drive an increase in transmission again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's also some question, when are we getting the vaccines that target the most recent variants? I don't have any additional intel on that. I think that everyone's working hard to get those out um, as quickly as can be, you know, what, what's feasible. But unfortunately, I don't know how soon that's going to happen. Um, so what do we have now? So currently we have boosters available that are targeted against the BA1 sub, uh, subvariant of Omicron. And that's important because that is an Omicron-directed uh, booster. And there is um, you know, some evidence to show that that still has better cross-protection against other types of Omicron. So I think it's useful. Um, we can try to get more targeted with our vaccines, and, and that's great. But ultimately, what we need in the future is vaccines that are going to be less um, specific to the types of variants that are going around and a little bit more universal. So, uh, you know, that kind of research is where we really need to invest so that we can, you know, start uh, chase or stop chasing the variants and, and being a little bit more holistic in, in the approach. So for people who've had boosters, who've had four shots, is it worth waiting for the latest version or and and, uh, three months or six months? Uh, That's pretty, you know, do I get it now or do I wait three months? Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you've had a fourth dose, you do have to wait at least the three months to get any additional sort of targeted booster that would come out. And some of that is balancing, you know, the protection that you will you will have from that other booster. Um, with when it actually may wane or you'd get additional protection from a new sort of directed, um, what we call the bivalent boosters. And those also contain the sort of original um, virus targets as well, not just the, um, the Omicron-related ones. And what about Thanksgiving? I mean, do you see this as a kind of uh, danger point? Uh, it it has in past years been considered that. Should people be masking? I mean, people are going to be having gatherings this people weekend. Are, yeah, people will have gatherings. 
But, you know, this isn't the first time. I think through the summer, there's been a lot of socializing and a lot of gatherings and, and sort of larger uh, events that have occurred and take, taken place. So it's not entirely new. I think progressively since the public health measures have been lifted and mandates have been lifted, people's behaviors have changed. Um, and so I don't know that it's going to be such a dramatic, uh, you know, driver of any additional transmission. What is starting to change in general, though, is the fact that it's getting cooler out and we're spending more time indoors with other people and largely unmasked. Um, All of this is sort of weighing the risks and the benefits and kind of making the decisions that make sense to you personally, given your circumstances, how protected you are, how susceptible you are if you have other, you know, underlying conditions or um, if you live with somebody who could be at risk uh, and, and what you feel comfortable with overall. I'm going to take one more call here from Tony in Etobicoke. Hello, Tony. Yeah, my mom right now is in the, the hospital at the, the Saga Trillium. They had an outbreak on her, I guess, floor or ward there, and they now have banned all visitors. Oh, dear. And to me, it's just like, you know, okay, I get it's there, you know. But no, for my mom, like, this is faster now, right? Like, she will not do well without somebody there. Like, you, you're not moving in and out of rooms. It seems like we've been down this road before where... She's in the hospital? Were, I, yeah, not, not for with COVID. She had other issues, right? But it, they had, an, I guess, outbreak in some rooms, and now they went from banning people overnight to nobody can be there. So you got somebody who can't get out of bed. You know, nurses are already overworked. You don't have the little extra help. And it's basically... The administration just treats everything like like cold heart science and you don't see the other aspect of care, which you have to have somebody there, right? You know, if you want to take somebody's temperature or even test them when they come in, that's one thing, but to have somebody with, you know, you can be there for four hours without somebody coming in because nurses are run off their feet. And that's what our initial disaster came from where people were, were under neglect. They were like dehydrated, you know, you get hot, you get cold, you need somebody to do the little things that the, that the nurse people shouldn't have to do if, if you have somebody Tony, thank, thank you very much for, for uh, sharing that, and uh, I hope uh, that uh, the ban gets lifted very soon. Uh, yeah, as we're hearing, uh, I haven't heard about any outbreaks in hospitals until that, Susie. Oh, there have been many outbreaks in hospitals, many, many. I think part of the thing is it's become almost a bit more routine, which is something I never thought in my career I'd be saying about outbreaks, but you know, COVID-19 is very transmissible and it's very wily. You know, there are features of it that we will never be able to change. For example, people could have the virus in them, not show any symptoms, test negative when they're first admitted, but be sort of incubating it, as we, we say, and at very high risk of spreading it to others before it's ever identified and they can be separated from others and, and protected, you know, protect their roommates. So it's it's a reality we've learned to have to deal with in hospitals. Very, very unfortunate. And I think a lot of work has been tried to put towards making outbreak management less difficult and disruptive. And it is heartbreaking to hear about, you know, visitors. And I, I don't even view visitors just as visitors. They, no, they there's like, obviously a caregiver. Said, a caregiver and support, you know, person for patients um, not being able to see their loved ones. Uh, but, you know, some of outbreak response has to be proportional to what's going on. And and a lot of work is being done to try and make it more, you know, less disruptive, but at the same time, keep a safe environment. Okay. Uh, Dr. Hota, what would you like to leave us with again as we head into a holiday weekend? Yeah, I think the biggest message is that COVID-19 is not gone, as we started off saying, but also there are other respiratory viruses and be aware of that. And, um, you know, we just have to make decisions based on what our, our own personal risks are um, to try and, you know, be as, as least affected and disrupted by all this. It will carry on for some time. Um, but this fall, yes, be aware of what's circulating around you. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Susie Hota. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. We are taking another break, and when we come back, are corporations paying their fair share of tax? And if they're not, who has to pay when we come back? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Are corporations paying their fair share of our taxes? According to Canadians for Tax Fairness, the answer is no. The group says Canadians lost as much as $30 billion due to an unexplained doubling of corporate tax avoidance in 2021. Uh, so I'm going to give you the numbers uh, uh, to see what you think of that. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-800-7-1-866-740-4740. And now to crunch the numbers, we have D.T. Cochran, an economist with Canadians for Tax Fairness. Hello and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So first of all, uh, who are you, Canadians for Tax Fairness? Uh, Explain. We're an advocacy organization. We advocate for a fairer, more progressive tax system. We think that the system as it exists is raked in favor of the wealthiest Canadians and the most powerful corporations. But we think that the system can be improved, and we advocate for that. Uh, and, and are you politically affiliated to the NDP or to unions or anything like that? We are nonpartisan. We will work with whatever policymakers uh, want to move forward with the policies that we think are needed. And how are you funded? Uh, we are funded by community groups, individuals. Uh, we have some uh, union institutional support, some nonprofits that uh, support our work. Um, and if anyone wants to donate, we're always looking to accept donations from people who think that what we're advocating for is what's needed. Okay. And so tax avoidance, uh, to me, that suggests uh, you get a good accountant and you do things that are legal, correct? Tax avoidance uh, includes a whole range of things. It's a bit of a catch-all term that does include things that are legal, things that are, you know, tax planning that um, is perfectly legitimate. But that tax planning, when done by highly sophisticated um, accountants and lawyers, will always push at the boundaries of what's allowed. Uh, But it also moves into the the range of things that aren't legal. So we use this term because, as we say in the report, we just don't know. Uh, A lot of this probably is legal, um, but that also doesn't mean that it's what's best for Canadians. And it's why we're calling on the government to explain this doubling of uh, corporate tax avoidance. And, and so what kinds of things uh, made up that $30 billion? Uh, well, again, we don't know exactly. We took our data from financial disclosures put out by the corporations themselves. Uh, we examined um, several years of reports from some of the companies with the biggest um, tax gaps and couldn't figure out exactly what they're doing, how they're able to push their effective tax rates down so low. The categories that they use to explain it are so vague that they don't tell us anything about what's actually going on. And that's why we're calling on the revenue minister to explain how they're able to achieve this. And uh, I'm looking 2021 pandemic. Could the doubling uh, be due to pandemic-related measures or breaks or anything like that? So the doubling is relative to the pre-pandemic year. So it's possible that there is certain fallout from measures that were introduced as part of the pandemic. Uh, If that's the case, if corporations are benefiting to this degree from measures that the government introduced, then it's that much more incumbent upon them to contribute their fair share to funding those very measures and not so aggressively being able to push their effective tax rates down. Mm -hmm. And so how would this impact uh, the average Canadian or, you know, a a wage earner who's got to pay taxes uh, and it's pretty straightforward how they do? Well, it's affecting average Canadians kind of on both sides of the equation. Part of the incredible increase in corporate tax avoidance is a result of much higher corporate profits. Much higher corporate profits are partially a result of higher inflation. It's not simply that the corporations are passing along their own higher costs. Our research shows that they're actually increasing their profit margins. So the corporations are driving the inflation giving them bigger profits, taking more money from us. Then on the other side of things, 
governments use their shortfalls in revenue to justify not spending on the things that we know Canadians need. So, for example, we have an aging population, and the pandemic showed we have a failing long-term care system. It needs much more government support, but when governments aren't getting the revenues that they need, they'll use that to justify not providing the support that's necessary. Uh, you're talking about uh, excess profits, not just because of inflation. Um, th- there are always two sides for that, and I certainly have not crunched the numbers myself. But on the one hand, we hear, we've heard from the NDP and others that there's profiteering going on. And then uh, we hear from other economists who say there is not really any evidence of that. So I, I, I believe the NDP has called for an investigation to determine why prices exactly are increasing. We're just saying that looking at the data, it's highly suggestive that the corporations are pushing up prices beyond their own costs, which is exacerbating inflation. They can't just say, well, it's global supply chains are increasing our costs when their profit margins are increasing at the same time. So we need to know much more about what's happening behind these numbers. Uh, we need much greater transparency from the corporations. And it's the federal government that has to mandate that and make sure that Canadians get the answers they need about this huge loss of public revenue. And uh, have you had any response from the government to this report? We haven't had any response directly. Uh, our contact information is widely available, and we will happily talk to anyone in the government about this issue and figure out how Canadians can get the answers that we deserve about this unexplained doubling of corporate tax avoidance. Well, I, I, I would recommend that you not sit by the phone. <laughs> Uh, well, we'll be we'll be pushing we'll be pushing as well. We'll make sure, we'll try to make sure that the minister sees a copy of our report. And and so, uh, what's your next steps on this to wrap things up? Well, our next steps are to continue to talk to media folks like yourself who are interested and concerned about this issue. But we're going to continue to research uh, what's going on here. We know that uh, at least a few of these companies benefited from the Q's program during the pandemic. So you have companies making record profits while also benefiting from a government support program. So we're going to look further into that to try to see if at the same time as companies are pushing down the taxes they have to pay, they're collecting more money from the government. Okay. Thank you so much, D.T. Cochran. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that's all the time we have for today uh, at sundown tonight. It is the Day of Atonement uh, and Apology. <laughs> so if there are any of our interviewees that I didn't ask the right questions of, uh, I'll be off tomorrow back here on Thursday. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.